Heavenly Father, we long to see the face of your son Jesus in this text this morning. So we pray that you would open our eyes, that you would uh, open our ears, Father, to what you would show us this morning. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. I would invite you to open your Bibles to uh, John, the Gospel of John, chapter 17. Uh, quite a well-known passage in the Scriptures. And as you're going there, let me, uh, let me kind of set up the context for, for this passage, for the reading this morning. Um, I've always had a fascination with how things work behind the scenes, whether it was being a young child and taking something apart and usually not being able to put it back together or watching a, a documentary about how something works behind the scenes or taking a tour along those same lines. It always piqued my curiosity. And I think that's probably true for most of us because when you see something at work behind the scenes, you, you, you get a little bit more buy-in with it. You're more engaged with it because you can kind of understand the big picture of what's going on. And one of those more interesting documentaries I've, I've ever seen was uh, about the Situation Room in the White House in Washington, D.C. Now, if you're not quite sure what that is, the Situation Room is not actually a room, but a 5,000-square-foot complex in the White House where all the most sensitive and confidential and delicate information from around the world comes into this one place. And from there, the, the leaders of our nation make very important decisions that have global consequences. If you Google Situation Room, all you're going to find are, are still pictures of it. And there's some very, um, uh, very important pictures that you'll find. And when you see that picture and when you understand the context of what's going on, you can, you can feel the, the weight, you can feel the gravity of, of what's taking place in the Situation Room. So if you've seen a picture of uh, President Bush in the Situation Room during uh, Katrina or the Iraq War, or uh, if you've seen a picture of Obama on the eve of the Bin Laden raid, you, you understand the context and you feel that weight of what takes place in that room. And as we turn to John 17 this evening, I, I want us to feel that same weight as we read the passage and we realize what is going on. This is the eve of the greatest offensive in human history and all of history to, to ever take place. This is the eve of our Savior's trial and death on a cross. And so as we read John 17 this morning, I want that to be the backdrop for us. So I would invite you to stand as you are able, as this is the word of God. And this morning, although we will have all of chapter 17 in view, I will only be reading the first five verses. Let's hear the word of our God. When Jesus had spoken these words, he lifted up his eyes to heaven and said, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your son that the son may glorify you since you have given him authority over all flesh to give eternal life to all whom you've given him. And this is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. I glorified you on earth, having accomplished the work that you gave me to do. And now, Father, glorify me in your own presence with the glory that I had with you before the world existed. This is the word of the Lord. Please be seated. Now, typically, when we think of a missions conference, John 17 isn't a passage that necessarily jumps out as, as, as a theme text or as a text to focus on. But what I want us to do this morning is, is really 
explore what's taking place here because oftentimes we'll read this, this prayer and we'll go through chapter 17 and we see a lot of, a lot of high and lofty and spiritual language taking place and, and then we just kind of brush by it. We, we seem to move on. And while on one hand, it's very true, this is very high and lofty, very beautiful language that we see as, as the father communicates with the son or the father, yeah, the father communicates with the son in this prayer. What we need to see as well is that this is also a declaration of war. This is a, a call to arms, so to speak. And when we see the context of that, of these words of Jesus, knowing what's going on, knowing what awaits him, it paints that picture for us. And one of the reasons we don't identify what's going on in here is because we've mischaracterized the war that is taking place. And if you mischaracterize the war that's taking place, obviously we're going to misinterpret, we're going to miss completely the mission that is at hand. So I want us to understand the war language in these verses, I want us to see how that impacts our mission that we have before us. We need to see what is at stake in this war. We need to see what are we at war with? What are we fighting for? What is the victory, the outcome of this war? You see, typically when we think of war, we put it in earthly terms, don't we? We have two equal parties that are against each other. And, and when we think about those earthly realities, we, we apply it one-to-one -one with Scripture, and we, we see God on, on one hand, and we see the evil one, we see Satan on the other at war with each other. We see light versus darkness. We see good versus bad. And although there's some elements that in that, in this, in this celestial war we see taking place, it goes much deeper. That earthly picture is very incomplete as to what we are talking about. This is not a, a battle of equals. God and, and his foe, the, the evil one, are not equals. But in this scripture, we see that Jesus himself is going to put a new focus on our hearts. And he starts right away with that in his first words in this prayer. He, he cries out, Father, the hour has come. And typically, I, I, I think we've kind of grown numb to that language of, of the gravity of what he's saying there because we, we've heard it a lot, but we need to remember what's going on. All throughout John, he's constantly saying, the hour has not yet come, the hour has not yet come, or he, he says, the, the hour is coming, but is not yet here. But then when we get to this text, what are his first words? Father, the hour has come. That should awaken us to what's going on here. But what is it awakening us to? What is going on? We see that the rest of these verses have that play out. They explain to us this reality. And as we've read through those five verses, I hope there's a particular word that jumped out and caught your attention. It's this word glorifying. If we could say anything about these five verses, there's, there's a whole lot of glorifying that's taking place. It mentions it five times in five verses. So obviously it must be of importance to us. But what does this glorifying have to do with missions? You see, Jesus is redefining the war. It's not a war between two equals. The evil one is not on par with our God. 
In fact, Jesus doesn't even mention the enemy until verse 15. And even in that context, he's not wishing for the the enemy to be destroyed, but rather that his people, God's people, would be kept from the evil one. The evil one is not a threat for our God in this war. That is not what we are up against. But rather, we see that this is a non-conventional war. It's not a, primarily a fight over an enemy. It's not primarily a fight for land or even for people, but it's a war for glory, God's glory. And that's why Jesus says, glorify your son, that the son may glorify you. What we need to see is that the chief end of missions is the glory of God. And that's probably nothing particular striking to you, nothing new probably that you haven't heard before. But what I want us to do now is look at the implications of that. Yes, we can say that chief end of missions is glory, but what does that actually mean? What does that have to do with our day to day? So I want to look at three implications of that reality. The first is this. If the chief end of missions is glory, then it changes the battlefield of this war. And specifically, what we see is that as Jesus prays this prayer, he, he takes the battleground from how we would consider it in earthly terms, and he, he pulls it out of space, and he pulls it out of time. What do I mean by that? Well, first, we see that he makes the battleground, and he, he pulls the mission out of space. That's how we think of in terms of war, don't we? A few weeks ago when Iran attacked Iraq, that typically wouldn't have made news, but why was it so important to us? Because they attacked one of our bases. We had our people there. That was our space that they invaded. And for that, we were glued to the television to see what would come next. But what Jesus does here is he doesn't limit this war to any particular geographical area, but he he zooms it out. He broadens the scope of that. Yes, on the one hand, we declare the glory of God among the nations, as we're told in Psalm 96, but but Jesus takes us beyond that reality. We see that in verse 4. I glorified you on earth, having accomplished the work that you gave me to do, and now, Father, glorify me in your own presence with that glory. What is that own presence? Well, he's talking about heaven itself. So this war of glory is taken out of an earthly context, now incorporates all of the cosmos, what we see here on earth, but we also join in the chorus of praising the glory of God in the heavens. It breaks those bounds. But as much as Jesus zooms out this vision of missions, he also zooms in to redefine this battleground as well. This is what he talks about when he talks about this thing about eternal life. He says, Father, you brought me here to give eternal life to all whom you've given him in verse two. And then he defines that for us. This is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God and Jesus Christ whom you've sent. One of the neat things about studying a second language is in your brain, you're always comparing the the second language with your, your heart language. So I'm always kind of processing through what does Spanish have to do with English? How do those two things incorporate one another? And and how does language really reflect how the culture communicates and perceives things? And I think here we have a great example because in English, we, we have one word that means to know. 
I can know my wife. I can know my friends. I can know you all in this congregation. I can know how to tie my shoe. I can know how to play the guitar. But when you switch that over to Spanish, there's actually two terms that they use to understand that. The one word, saber, is when we, we, we know how to do something or we, we know math or, or we know how to drive a car, something along those lines. It involves knowledge. I have knowledge of how to do something. But there's another word that provides a lot more nuance. And that word's conocer. And the idea of that word is that it goes beyond knowledge of something and goes into a relationship. With that word is the word I would use to say that I know somebody because it's built around relationship. And that's what's going on here in this text is that the word here that is used is that relational dynamic. Yes, our faith is built upon knowledge. It's built upon the word, but that, that word moves from our head to our heart. We have to know God the Father. We have to know God the Son. We have to know the Holy Spirit in that manner. So we see as it zooms in, Jesus moves the battleground deep into the heart. There's a zooming in on the relationship there. And this isn't just pie in the sky theology. These aren't just kind of pretty thoughts we can walk away from this morning, but they have practical implications of it. It means when you walk into the same cinder block hut time and time again, trying to share the gospel with a, a family who you know is not going to leave their socioeconomic status. They're going to be in poverty for most of their lives. It's the only hope you can take into that home, knowing that that battleground is not in what they have. It's not even in this earth, but it's taking place in their hearts. That's where the war of glory is being raged. And I imagine for Ellie as well in Japan, as she faces 39 million people, as overwhelming as that can get, the good news is that that battleground is the same in Japan in a city of 39 million as it is in the Jackson area, a metro area of 300,000. The battleground is the same. It's taking place in the heart. One by one, it is going out. It means that when I go to a medical campaign and I'm translating for doctors and I have to translate the bad news that a mother who brought their young child in can do nothing more than really go home and prepare for the death of their child who has a terminal disease, it means that child may not be healed on this earth. But that's not where the battleground is. The battleground is in the heart. She can walk away with the gospel, with the good news, and that war is being waged right there. And we have nothing but the gospel to provide her. So Jesus takes this missions idea, this war idea, and he, he pulls it out of space, but he also pulls it out of time itself. And there's two very um, obvious examples of that. We already talked about one, this idea of eternal life already roots the battleground outside of time. And also in verse five, Jesus talks about this glory that, that he had before the world even existed. But we see something else taking place here. And you may have missed it the first time we read through it. So let's, let's go back and see it. We see this idea in verse four. Jesus says to God the Father, I glorified you on earth, having accomplished the work that you gave me to do. Now here, there should be some bells and alarms going off, right? 
because Jesus hasn't gone to the cross yet. He hasn't died. He hasn't been put in the tomb. He hasn't resurrected on the third day. So what's he talking about? That his work has been accomplished. All that the, the, the father gave him to do. What is, what's going on here? You see, when Jesus lifts his eyes to the heaven and enters into that moment of prayer, as he, he, he takes us into the situation room, as it were, he's pulling us out of that moment of time. And he's reminding us that this mission, this war for glory is based in all of eternity. It's not limited by the, the temporal bounds and the pressures that we have on ourselves, but it is beyond that. It is rooted in an eternal covenant that cannot be shaken. And this too has implications for us. You see, as we were getting ready to leave uh, Arequipa, Peru back in October, we were having a lot of goodbye dinners and meetings with friends and uh, a common occurrence that happened in those meetings is that we, we got the same comment over and over. You see, it wasn't towards the end of our time there that we really developed some of our deeper relationships, really the past two to three years. And we were there for a total of over six years. So they'd come to us when we were having these final dinners with them and say, Nate and Nikki, I, I wish we would have met you sooner. But in the same breath, they would also say this, but I'm glad we didn't. Because if we had met you sooner, if we had met you when you arrived here, we wouldn't have listened to you. We wouldn't have paid attention to what you were sharing with us. You see, that was in the Lord's timing and his providence. That was based in an eternal covenant because when we shared the gospel with them, the Lord had providentially ordained that that was when their hearts would be ready to receive the message that we had brought. The years before that, they'd been living in the, the teachings of the prosperity gospel and our message would have been ignored and not just ignored, but hated, but the Lord had coordinated that so that they heard the message at the right time. So yes, it was difficult to hear that they wish they had met us sooner, but, but it encouraged us to know that that was the Lord's timing in all that he was doing. So if the chief end of missions is God's glory, and we've seen that Jesus then takes that and pulls that out of time and space and redefines the battleground. It must necessarily redefine the means by which we use to engage in this war. It changes the weapons. And I want us to briefly look at three of these. We read this in verse six. I have manifested your name to the people whom you've gave me out of this world. We have that word manifested there. What's, what's Jesus talking about? Well, John's referring back to, to his first chapter, right? When he says that the, the, the word was with God and the, the word became God, alluding to Jesus' incarnation. When he, he took on flesh, he became the word incarnate. And he gives of himself, who is the living word. And he also gives the word from the father out. And, and that word that he's given to us is now given to us as a weapon in this battle for glory. So we take this word out. This is why there's so much importance in John's gospel about these I am statements. We see Jesus manifesting the name of the Father. And as we take this word out, it's the only weapon that can pierce the heart in this war. If that is the battleground, there's nothing that can bring us into that battleground like the word can. There is no reason that 
We see later on that Paul will describe this armor of God in Ephesians 6. And what is the base of that armor? It is the word of God manifesting itself out in many ways. And we see how the Lord works that out. In verse 8, we receive the word. In verse 6, we keep it, we hold on to it. And then later on in the chapter in verses 18 through 20, we're, we're then sent out with the word. That is the weapon that we are called to take up, brothers and sisters, in this war for glory. And the second should be no surprise, but we have the, the weapon of prayer in this battle. Now, considering the broad view, all of chapter 17, obviously, is, is a prayer between the Father and the Son. Jesus is, is taking this war to the heart through prayer. But we must confess as we read this, if it was necessary for Christ himself to engage in prayer in this battle for glory, how much more should we be dependent upon prayer? How much more should we be engaged in this battle through praying? You see, Jesus, he prays for his followers. We see that in the first section, starting in verse 9. And then in, in verse 20, there's a subtle shift to, to future followers, to those who will place their faith in Christ, to those that will receive the word. That weapon is the same for us. We pray for our brothers and sisters, but we also pray for the lost, those whom are the elect out there, who have been given from the Father to the Son, that are hearing the message, that will hear the message that will hear the word. You see, this weapon of prayer brings us into communion with the Trinity. It takes us out of this world and into that battleground outside of space and time. When we pray, thy will be done, that prayer gives us that eternal perspective. We are engaged in battle. And there's one more weapon we see in this text. It's the weapon of money. Now, I know when you hear that, you may squirm a little bit and you may be thinking, well, we've been talking about all this spiritual stuff, Nate, and then you're going to kind of slide one in there, huh? You're going to start talking about money. Of course you are. You're a missionary. We put you up there and sooner or later you'll get to it, right? Well, friends, I don't want you to hear my words today. What I want us to do is see this in the text this morning. This whole prayer is built around this idea of Jesus sending the son. And now as the son begins to finish his, his earthly work, his earthly ministry, that, uh, that work is then being sent out through the followers of Christ, through you and I. And although that's the context of the whole passage in verse 18, it's abundantly clear. Jesus says, as you sent me into the world, so I have sent them into the world. What does that mean that Jesus sends us into the world? Well, first we have to understand what it means that God the Father sent God the Son into the world. We can't understand that second clause until we've wrestled with the first. What is the cost that the Father paid to send the Son? What is the cost that the Son, sent, that the Son paid to be sent by the Father? We have to understand this idea. So what is that cost? That cost was that God the Father sent his only son to earth, who he himself stepped down out of glory, out of the heavens, and he took on flesh, and not just the flesh of, of a king or a, or a prince or, or a, a political leader, but he took on a lowly servant born in a manger. 
born in a nothing of a city. He grew up and the word that he was deliver was that he was to deliver was rejected by his own family, his own hometown, even his own disciples at one point abandoned him and all this. It is the humiliation of Christ. He paid that all for us, but of course we know the moment in which the ultimate price was paid. When Christ bore the nails and was put on the cross and he received the curse that you and I deserve. And in that moment, the father is paying the price of watching his son upon the cross. The son is, is, is paying the price as the pain shoots through his body and, and as he cries out to his father. That is the price that was paid. So friends, if we consider that price that was paid and the father sending the son, what price do we pay being sent by the son to the nations? It means everything. It means we pay everything just as Christ did. It means body and soul. And if that's what that means, at a bare minimum, it involves the giving of our, our resources. Now, yes, we started out talking about money, but we could put a lot of things under here, right? Our treasures, everything we have, who we are, it is to be laid bare as we bear our cross and follow Christ. But there's a reason that I'm mentioning money this morning, and it's the same reason that Jesus does. You see, when we meditate on his words and he says, for where your treasure is there, your heart will be also. What we see taking place is as Jesus sends us out in the world and we make that sacrifice, Jesus is saying, you know what needs to lead? It's gonna be your treasures because I know you. Where your treasure is, you're gonna put your heart there also and you're gonna engage. So let's reframe that a little bit. When your missionaries come to you or your, the, the leaders in the church come to you and they're asking for your, your, your prayer and financial support for the ministry of the local church and the ministry of missions, oftentimes what do we do? We think, yeah, they're saying prayer and money, but we all know what that really means. They put that prayer side on it to make it sound spiritual, but they really, they really just need our money. No, scripture blows that out of the water. It's saying the reason why money's involved in this whole thing of, of church ministry of missions is because God knows our hearts follow us into battle if we put our treasures there. If we give of ourselves, we will engage. But it also tells us as we give of ourselves, as you fill out that pledge card, that act is not just a means by which missionaries can be sent out to the nations to, to further this war of glory, but even in that act of giving to Pear Orchard, even in that, you are waging war. It is taking that war into your heart and you are confessing what we believe as Christians, that Christ is sufficient, that all we have is from God. That is a declaration of the war taking place in our own hearts. So friends, we have seen how the glory of God changes the, the battleground of missions. We've also seen that it changes the arms, the, the weapons we use in this missions venture, but it also must redefine how we understand victory. How do we measure success 
in this battle of glory. I think missionaries especially know very well how we as a church define success. We're uh, accustomed because we receive support from, from churches. We get regular uh, surveys and reports we need to fill out and send back to the church, which is a joy to do. We love sharing uh, what's going on on the field. But there's one question that, uh, that I get every year and that I wrestle with, and I forgot to make this disclaimer this morning. This is not a question that I get from Pear Orchard, but I, I want us to hear this. The question says, describe your spiritual rate of return for support given from our church. Now, I hope that question should jar you maybe just a little bit. It's kind of a painful question to ask, but at the end of the day, it really sheds a lot of light on how we understand success in this war. And I share this question with you, not to, not to shame anyone, but rather to say that this question is something that resides in all of our hearts. We all have this tendency, don't we? As we try to understand this whole ministry thing, as we try to understand this war of glory, how do we, how do we understand success in all of this? Well, Jesus too redefines that. Because if God's glory is the final end of missions, then it changes how we understand that victory. It takes it out of our hands because it is only Jesus who's been given all authority. It's only Jesus who accomplished that work on the cross and in his resurrection. It is only Jesus who's given us the word. It's Jesus who prays for us as our mediator. It is he who has paid it all. But we carry around that burden. I can I think safely say I speak for most missionaries when we we feel that weight of we have all these folks around us supporting us. We need to produce a return of investment, so to speak. But scripture helps us to put that in its proper place. And perhaps the clearest way that we can see this, one of them is in 2 Corinthians 2. And in the words of, of Paul, here's what he writes. For we are the aroma of Christ to God among those who are being saved and among those who are being perishing. To one, a fragrance from death to death. To the other, a fragrance from life to life. Who is sufficient for these things? You see, success in this mission, in this battle for God's glory is not about fruit, but it's about faithfulness. That is what we are called to engage in. Because for some, we're going to go out whether it's our neighbor here in Ridgeland or whether it's our, our neighbor in Peru or in Japan or wherever else, we're gonna go out and we're gonna share the word. And there's gonna be some that, that really grab onto it. They, they place their faith in Christ and in that God is glorified as his mercy and grace is shown to them because the gospel is the aroma of life to life. But there are others that we will preach time and time again, we will share with them the gospel time and time again, but they're not going to grasp it. They're not going to, to keep it and receive it. In fact, they're going to reject it, to rebel against it. They're going to, to hate it. And for them, the gospel is the aroma of death. But even in that, if this is a war for glory, God is glorified in that as well through his perfect and just judgment. 
So if Jesus is redefining success, not only is there a redefinition that we see here, but it also guarantees victory. You see, friends, if, if this mission is based in God's glory, what else could there be to guarantee victory? If our mission is, is based in this prayer between the Father and the Son, our only mediator, if he's praying for us, what can we lose? If all of this is based in God's sovereignty, there is a 100% rate of return. There is a 100% victory because what else could there be to assure us of that? And what else could there be to, to make us think that it's not possible if it's based in these things? So friends, this morning we have stepped into this celestial situation room and, and the Lord in his grace has kind of peered back this great mission that we are involved with. And I would leave you with this idea that if God's glory is the chief end of this war, if it is the chief end of missions, it also calls all of us to be engaged in it. Not just your pastors, not just your elders, not just the missionaries you send out, but in each and every one of us. Is God's glory not deserving of that? Even as all of us engage in that, is even all of us being a part of that sufficient for the glory of God? Friends, if the chief end of this mission is God's glory, we must enter the battlefield. We must use the arms that he has availed to us, but we also do so knowing that we fight in victory, not for victory, but we're fighting in victory. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, again, we give you thanks um, for this morning that we can gather together as your people and we can glorify you. We can glorify you through song, through prayer, through confession, through the hearing of your word, through the preaching of your word, Father. What a, a joy and encouragement that is to us. And we pray that as we consider that, that it would not simply fall to the ground as we leave this place, but you would use these things to send us out into the battleground, Father, that you would use these things to remind us of our, our, our duty to, to bear arms of, of the word and of, of prayer and of the giving of ourselves, our, our talents, our treasures, all of us, Father, that we would take up our cross in this mission. But most of us, most of all, Father, we pray that you'd remind us that you have the victory in this. And we engage in this mission, not wondering how it will end or who will win, but Father, we know how this comes to an end. We know that every knee shall bow as we heard this morning from Revelation. Father, let us put our hope in that. Let that, your glory, your victory, be our motive as we leave this place. We pray all of this in Christ's name, amen.